Good afternoon, and you're very welcome to the eighth edition of the 2021 Bar of Ireland Green Street Lecture Series. We are delighted to welcome today Ms. Justice Nuala Butler, who is going to speak on the topic of the trials of Nurse Cadden. Thank you very much, Ms. Justice Butler. Thank you. Between 1922, the foundation of the state, and the abolition of the death penalty in 1964, 22 women were convicted of murder in Ireland. 12 of those women had killed their newborn infants. The infants were all illegitimate. This is not the story of those women, but their distress is relevant to the story I'm going to tell. Five of the group killed men in their immediate family circle. Two had been in domestic service and killed their employers. 19 of the 22 women convicted of murder before 1964 killed in their immediate domestic circumstances. The subject of this lecture is one of the exceptions. She is perhaps the most famous or the most infamous of the group. Mary Ann Cadden, known as Mamie, or as Nurse Cadden, was a successful professional woman. She was a qualified midwife, she owned her own property, and she ran her own business. She was also an abortionist. At a time when the law reflected deeply conservative Catholic social thinking and morality, she ran her business more or less openly. The fact that her activities were criminal was an occupational hazard. She was th tried three times, convicted three times, and served three terms of imprisonment. The Irish public has an enduring fascination with Nurse Cadden. She's been the subject of two RTE documentaries, a biography. She features invariably in all anthologies of famous Irish murder cases, and she's been the subject of numerous academic studies. A search through newspaper archives for the purpose of this lecture showed that she's used to add colour and to illustrate stories with which she has only a passing connection. In December 1989, a report of the death of the former Commissioner of Ungarda Siakona, Michael Wims, mentioned two cases with which he had been involved in a 45-year policing career. One of them was Nurse Cadden's. In November 2009, the Royal Irish Academy published a dictionary of Irish biography. The article in the Irish Times was illustrated with a photograph of Nurse Cadden and reprinted her biography in full. So who was Nurse Cadden? And why, more than 15 years before she was convicted for murder, was she one of the most famous, if not the most infamous, women in Ireland? The background facts can be stated briefly. She was born in 1891 in Scranton, Pennsylvania, a town that's no doubt now more proud as being the birthplace of President Joe Biden. Her parents were Irish, Patrick and Mary, and she was the eldest of seven children. The family returned to Ireland in 1845, when Mamie was four. Her father took over her grandfather's farm. By the standards of the time, the family were comfortable. By 1911, her father had bought the farm under the Land Purchase Acts in addition to some other land. Unusually and significantly, he put an acre and a half of that land into the name of his eldest daughter, Mary Ann. The family opened a grocery store. Mamie left school at 15 and worked in that shop and continued to work there for nearly 20 years. In 1925, she sold the portion of land that her father had given her back to her father and used the money to come to Dublin and undertake a six-month 
horse in midwifery in Hollis Street. At that stage, she was already 35 years of age, which was positively middle-aged by the standards of the time. Why did she choose midwifery? It's actually hard to tell. There's no suggestion that either she or her mother had been involved in assisting at births. Women in the countryside were traditionally known as handy women and passed their skill down from generation to generation. She also didn't seem to exhibit the empathetic characteristics that are stereotypically associated with nurses and midwives. She may simply have wanted not to be the spinster sister living on her brother's farm, or she may have been interested in the scientific aspects of nursing and midwifery. Either way, she was proud of her professional qualifications and appears to have been a skillful midwife. What was the medical world in Dublin in the 1920s into which Nurse Cadden qualified like? Obviously, there had always been nurses and doctors, people interested in how the body worked, in healing and in tending to the sick. In the 1700s, the formation of professional societies established physicians, surgeons and related fields as men with scientific interests. This was followed by the regulation of those professions, which became a feature of the late 19th century. In particular, doctors were striving for respectability. If you think of the novels of Jane Austen, the heroines wanted to marry gentlemen, they wanted to marry clergymen, they wanted to marry naval officers, they occasionally consented to marry people in trade or business who had an awful lot of money, but none of them would have considered marrying a doctor. In 1895, the Medical Registration Act provided a single licensing or registration system for all types of doctors. It allowed for the formalization of medical qualifications and training. One thing it didn't do was prohibit the practice of medicine by people who were unqualified, something which realistically could not have been done at a time when there was no free health care and most people were dependent on traditional practitioners and remedies. A study of the Dublin Medical Press, the equivalent of The Lancet, by Anne Daly, shows the efforts of the medical profession to establish itself as reputable and to extend its authority into all aspects of public life. It did this by aligning itself with the moral code of the Victorian middle classes. And remember, these were people who regarded piano legs as so shocking that they had to be covered. They also took a very particular view of appropriate feminine conduct. Women who practiced birth control were both selfish and uncaring. Prior to the late 19th century, the training of doctors was haphazard, but most doctors appreciated that a knowledge of midwifery was going to be essential to practice around the country. The lying-in hospitals, which had been founded in urban areas in the 17 and early 1800s, had midwifery schools attached. Most of the students were male, persons intending to become doctors rather than midwives. Women were employed as care attendants, looking after mothers prior to and after birth, but not seen as being capable of handling the birth itself, unless, of course, they were the woman giving birth. Most women still gave birth at home. In the rural areas, they were assisted by handy women, and in urban areas, the well-to-do were assisted by doctors in their own houses. The lying-in hospitals were intended for women where the conditions at home were dire. Women were reluctant to attend those hospitals because maternal death rates were high. It took some time to convince the male doctors that the problem lay with their own hygiene standards 
rather than what they saw as the filth and slovenliness of the women they were attending. By 1879, 94 mothers died giving birth in the rotunda lying in hospital. Even as late as 1915, 576 mothers died associated with childbirth in Ireland. Improvements in maternal death rates came about in large part because of the increased organisation and recognition of the nursing and midwifery professions. In Ireland, the first nurses were organised in the early 19th century. Food shortages, disease and fever gave rise to an evident need for attendance on the sick poor. Two groups of religious sisters in particular were set up to look after the sick in their own homes, the Sisters of Mercy and the Sisters of Charity. By 1832, there was a cholera epidemic raging in Dublin and the sisters were invited into the cholera hospitals to assist the doctors. There was an immediate improvement in outcomes. By 1835, the Sisters of Charity had founded St Vincent's Hospital, which was, interestingly, the first major public hospital in the world to be founded by nurses rather than doctors. By 1850, the first training programmes were open to non-religious persons, usually women. And by 1894, 39 Irish hospitals had training schools for nurses. Nursing in Ireland developed its own distinct style, usually with a strong spiritual dimension. And nurses, like doctors, looked to regulate their profession to enhance their status. This led to the Midwives Ireland Act of 1891. A similar act had been passed in the UK in 1902. It set up the Central Midwives Board to maintain the role of midwives to regulate training and admission to the profession. Training was expensive. In 1918, it cost £22 for a six-month course in Hollis Street. The average industrial wage was £50 a year. There was a very strong influence of the religious on the nursing profession. A large number of nurses were members of religious congregations. The religious orders in voluntary hospitals ran the nursing training schools. And the religious ethos of hospitals was an essential part of their characteristic. That indeed continues to be part of public discourse, as is evident from the discussion concerning the merger of St. Vincent's Hospital with the National Maternity Hospital. I will return to the theme of the conservatism of the healthcare professions when we look at the role of the Pharmaceutical Society of Ireland in achieving the banning of contraceptives. That was the state of the healthcare professions when Nurse Cadden's name was entered on the role of midwives in December 1926. She obtained employment in a nursing home in Portland Row, where she worked between 1927 and 1929. Employed nurses were not well paid, and Nurse Cardin undoubtedly saw a business opportunity, perhaps with the benefit of the experience she'd gained in her family business. In 1929, she opened her own maternity nursing home at 61 Lower Beechwood Avenue in Ranelagh. The emergent urban middle classes tended to give birth in nursing homes. These nursing homes were subject to regulation under the Registration of Maternity Homes Act in 1934. They were subject to inspection and the superintendent had to be either a qualified nurse or a qualified midwife. Nurse Cadden's was undoubtedly a success. And by 1931, with the assistance of a mortgage, she had bought a substantially larger premises at 183 Lower Rathmines Road and opened St. Male Rooms, her maternity nursing home. This meant that by the time she turned 40, 
Nurse Cadden was the owner of her own property and her own successful business. She was also becoming a well-known figure in Dublin. She was very distinctive. She had blonde hair. She dressed wearing fur coats. And she drove a red MG sports car, which she had imported in 1934. She was a self-made, professionally and financially successful woman. And she was ostentatious. This did not sit well with Dublin's medical establishment. However, the public fascination with Nurse Cadden was growing. One factor in her success is that by the standards of the time, Nurse Cadden was either non-judgmental or indifferent to the circumstances in which her clients became pregnant. In addition to straightforward maternity services, she offered a range of services that her colleagues were reluctant to provide. Women having illegitimate babies came to do so in Nurse Cadden's nursing home. She treated women after self-induced abortions. She provided abortions and she treated venereal diseases. These services were offered in a context where the status of illegitimacy was life-defining and indeed life-destroying to many women and children. I've given some thought to the use of the word illegitimate. It's a harsh term, but the harshness reflects the harsh and unforgiving attitude of society supported by the law to women who gave birth outside of marriage and the children to whom they gave birth. An illegitimate child was permanently tainted by what was regarded as the state of sin in which it was conceived. The church opposed adoption for this reason because illegitimate children were morally suspect and the status was not abolished until the Status of Children Act in 1987. The historical sections of the report of the Commission of Investigation into Mother and Baby Homes, published in October 2020, paints a very graphic and a very grim picture of the impossible position a woman giving birth outside of marriage found herself in, and also illustrates the movement towards the incarceration of both those women and their children. One aspect I hadn't appreciated before I read the Commission report was that a mother was legally responsible for the maintenance of her illegitimate child. A father was only legally responsible for the maintenance of his legitimate children unless an affiliation order was made by the District Court. However, under Section 3.2 of the Illegitimate Children Affiliation Orders Act of 1930, the District Court could only make an order after hearing the evidence of the mother and evidence corroborative of the mother's evidence. In an era before DNA testing and even blood testing, that meant the mother had to have a witness to her illicit relationship with the child's father before she could hope for any support. There was no public assistance available for unmarried mothers. The Poor Law Amendment Act in 1834 forbade the provision of what was called outdoor relief to unmarried mothers. Effectively, a mother had to commit herself to the workhouse and become institutionalised in order to receive support from public funds. And that position continued for 140 years until the Unmarried Mothers Allowance was introduced in 1973. So mothers faced social stigma, financial cost, and a complete lack of support. What was to happen to their children? In fact, three things happened. The first was infanticide. Although the crime of infanticide wasn't formally introduced in Ireland until 1949, Before that, the killing of a child under the age of one was treated as murder. Nonetheless, it was very common. Between 1926 and 1949, there were 181 investigations and prosecutions 
for murder where the victim was a child of less than one year of age. In 160 of those cases, the accused person was the mother. The other persons were either female relatives of the mothers or the partner of the mother. Over a similar period between 1924 and 1949, the Central Statistic Office recorded 856 cases of concealment of birth. Concealment of birth involved the non-reporting of a birth where the child was stillborn or died shortly after death. The vast majority of these cases, it can be inferred that the child was killed either deliberately or through neglect, but there was not enough evidence to charge anyone with murder. This means that in 25 years, over a thousand children were killed at birth. It's a startling statistic, and it illustrates the enormous social pressure on desperate mothers. And of course, it's not entirely historic. When I was a law student in 1984, there were two cases in Curry, one of which involved the concealment of a birth, and the other of which involved the stabbing of a child at birth. To this day, it's not known who either the mother of the second child or the identity of the child himself. The second thing that happened was the abandonment of infants. Usually children were abandoned in circumstances where it was intended or anticipated that they would be found. As neither the mother nor the child could be identified, the child would then become the responsibility of the local authority and the mother would ex escape the financial obligation to support her illegitimate child. She would also avoid the stigma of illegitimacy and could move on with her life quite often by leaving the country. The third thing was the placing of children with other women for a fee. This could take two forms. There were informal adoptions. Quite often, families wanted and welcomed these children into their lives. More often, the child was placed at nurse from infancy and another woman was paid to look after it. In theory, the mother who placed the child was intending to recover the child, but in practice, she could rarely afford to do so. There were very limited employment options, many of them in domestic service, which required the woman to live in. There was no childcare and no family support. If a mother gave birth in a county home, the successors to the workhouses, the local authority placed the child at nurse and later boarded the child out until it was old enough to go to an industrial school. If a mother gave birth privately, these matters were organised privately. The mother paid a fee out of which those organising the placement took a cut, and then the woman who was looking after the child was paid. The main person responsible for these arrangements in Dublin was a social worker called Kathleen McLaughlin, and the practice was entirely lawful. The placements were registered. The outcome for children was very poor. In the 1920s and 30s, one third of Irish children died in the first year of life. Sorry, one tenth of Irish children died in the first year of life. One third of illegitimate children died in the first year of their lives. In 1923, a report by the Registrar General of Births, Deaths and Marriages noted that the death rate for illegitimate children was six times that for legitimate children. The position of children at nurse was particularly stark, especially if a lump sum had been paid in advance for their care, because the woman had no incentive to keep the child alive there was almost an implicit understanding that the child might not survive. A study by Sarah Ann Berkeley looked at children at nurse in Ireland between 1872 and 1952. She noted that post-independence, the National Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Children voiced criticism of the neglect and ill-treatment 
of at-nurse children. However, the NSPCC did not support either the introduction of legal adoption or of measures to assist women in keeping their own children. The solution was that those children should be taken into the care of religious institutions. Nurse Cadden became involved in both of the latter two practices and indeed was a, a, an associate of Kathleen McLaughlin. In fact, that is how she first came in contact with the law. 1938 was to be a pivotal year for Nurse Cadden. In February of 1938, a widow from Hove contacted her seeking urgent assistance. The woman had taken ergot, an abortifacient drug, and things had gone badly wrong. Nurse Cadden was not in attendance that night and arranged for the woman's admittance the following morning. By then, the plaintiff was bleeding profusely. Nurse Cadden called in a Dr. Percy Seeger who practiced in Fitzwilliam Street and it's likely that he saved the woman's life. The baby was born dead and the birth was not registered. Some months later, on the 14th of June 1938, a two and a half month old baby girl was found on the roadside in Dunshocklin. She had been abandoned. Garthy believed that Nurse Cadden was involved in the abandonment of a number of babies in Dublin and the surrounding counties in the three or four years preceding that. In Dunshocklin, they had a number of witnesses who reported seeing a red sports car with two female occupants driving towards and then back from Navan along the road that evening. One of the, witness, one of the women was described as being blonde and wearing a fur coat. It was undoubtedly Nurse Cadden. Who was her companion? Nurse Cadden said that it was an unnamed medical student. The Gardaí fixed on a woman called Molly O'Grady. She was a distant relative of Nurse Cadden's and had known her in Mayo, had worked with her in Portland Row and was employed by her in both Beechwood Avenue and St. Mayle Rooms. There was considerable speculation about the nature of the relationship between these two women. In July of 1938, both of them were arrested and charged with abandonment and with conspiracy. They spent nearly two months in Mount Joy before bail was secured. During that time, another three children were found abandoned in Dublin and the surrounding areas. Clearly, those, women had, those children had not been abandoned by Nurse Cadden. It illustrates the scale of the problem and the fact that it was not attributable to a single person. In the course of their investigation, the Gardaí conducted a search of St. Mel Runes. In the back garden of the premises, they found the body of an infant buried. This appears to have been the child that was stillborn in February 1938. This prompted a very serious line of inquiry, which ultimately went nowhere. However, it was sensational. Gardaí added two counts of obtaining monies by false pretenses against Nurse Cadden. Those counts related to two sums of £50 which had been paid by two different women to arrange for their children, and I quote, to be adopted and cared for by a community of nuns in a Catholic home. A report of a remand hearing in the District Court on these charges in the Irish Times on the 1st of October 1938 deals with an argument between the two barristers as to whether the women making the complaints should be named. Counsel for the prosecution said that the defendant's insistence that they be named was equivalent to blackmail because everybody knew the circumstances in which a child was placed for adoption. The defence pointed out, not unreasonably, that the charges couldn't be sustained if the women were not named. Ultimately, the charges were not pursued. 
To add to Nurse Cadden's woes, her solicitor, a man called George Boyle, requested an adjournment of the trial because Nurse Cadden was not in a position to pay his legal fees. This necessitated the sale of St. Mael Rooms, which was concluded in May of 1939, and then the trial proceeded. However, it meant that before the trial had even started, Nurse Cadden had lost everything that she had worked for. The first trial took place in May 1939 at the Circuit Criminal Court before Mr Justice Black. The evidence was circumstantial, but fairly damning. No one had seen the baby in the red car, and nobody had seen the red car stop. But multiple witnesses placed Nurse Cadden at the scene at the material time. And crucially, the records in St. Mail Rooms showed the birth of a female infant in early April 1938, which had not been officially reported. Both women were convicted. The jury, unusually, asked for leniency for Molly O'Grady on the basis that she was unduly influenced by Nurse Cadden. And in imposing sentence, Judge Black described Molly O'Grady as being under the dominance of almost hypnotism of a strong character. This was reflected in sentence. Molly O'Grady received a six-month suspended sentence. Nurse Cadden was suspended to one year's imprisonment with hard labour, which she served in Mount Joy. Molly O'Grady disappears from the narrative at this point. But it's interesting that in a letter written in 1956, Nurse Cadden said that Kathleen McLaughlin, the social worker, was in fact the person responsible for the abandonment of the baby in Dunshockland. Nurse Cadden served her sentence and was released in early 1940. The trial and the conviction had a very significant effect on her. She lost her business and indeed her premises. She was struck off the roll of midwives on the 6th of July 1939 and that meant she could never legally run a maternity nursing home again. However, she re-established herself. She always styled herself Nurse Cadden and she offered services that the Catholic medical establishment was not prepared to offer, in particular, abortion. She also had an ongoing grievance against her former solicitor, George Boyle, and she was embroiled in litigation as a lay litigant against him for many years. She made a complaint to the Gardaí that he had retained her register. This was a significant document. She claimed she needed it to recover fees from former patients, but of course the names of those patients were themselves in high demand. Mr Boyle sued her in the Master's Court for the balance of fees due. Newspaper reports indicate that the amount was some £667, 8 shillings and twopence, which works out at about €44,500, a very significant sum. In fact, interestingly, the Irish Times report notes that Averill Deverell BL acted for Mr Boyle. Ms Deverell was one of the first two women called to the bar in either Ireland or England. Nurse Cadden sued Mr Boyle in the Circuit Court in 1949. It was a very wide-ranging claim, and it was mostly, but not entirely, unsuccessful. The most damaging item to Mr Boyle was that she included a claim for personal injuries for using black hair dye, which had been recommended by Mr Boyle. In 1938, she had attended an identity parade in connection with the Dunshockland matter with her distinctive blonde hair dyed black. Finally, she was now notorious. Clients sought her out, aware of the type of services which she provided. It didn't take Nurse Cadden long to bounce back. She rented a basement suite of rooms at number 21 Upper Pembroke Street. Officially, she provided treatment for dandruff and constipation, and venereal disease, but her main business was abortion.
This begs the question as to why there was such a demand for Nurse Cadden's services. The first reason is the absolute non-availability of birth control or even information about birth control in Ireland in the 1930s and 40s. When the state became independent in 1922, birth control was not illegal, but it was not considered respectable. The availability of birth control was initially attacked through censorship. On independence, the 1857 Obscene Publications Act did not actually define what was obscene, save that it had a tendency to deprave and corrupt. There was concern in Ireland that English judges no longer regarded material on birth control as falling into this category. Catholic Ireland needed a higher standard. The opportunity arose following the receipt of a report from a wonderfully titled committee, the Committee on Evil Literature, which had been set up by the Department of Justice in 1926. This wasn't actually a purely Irish invention. After the First World War, there was a concern about pornography and the League of Nations established a convention on the suppression of the circulation and traffic of obscene publications. Signatory states were required to look at the adequacy of their law. The committee in Ireland was needless to say all male and predominantly made up of clergymen. It was heavily influenced by submissions made by the Catholic Truth Society, which was part of a broader international movement called Catholic Action, the objective of which was to have Catholic social morality reflected in the law. One-fifth of the report of the committee dealt with contraception, which was regarded as sexually explicit propaganda. In the Censorship of Publications Act 1929, Section 16 included an express prohibition on the publication, sale and distribution of material advocating the unnatural prevention of conception or the procurement of abortion. So contraceptives themselves remained legal, but nobody was to know about them. Enter the Pharmaceutical Society of Ireland. This was a body established in 1875. By the 1920s, it outdid even the medical and nursing professions in its desire to be seen to promote Catholic social values. It saw the sale of contraceptives not as a woman's health issue, but as a moral issue. Consequently, it made the sale of contraceptives professionally unethical. You could be struck off for selling contraceptives, even though they were perfectly legal. Consequently, no pharmacy would sell them. It then lobbied the government for a legal ban on the sale of contraceptives. And in this regard, it was supported by a papal encyclical of 1930 against what was then the mass manufacture of condoms. Section 17 of the Criminal Law Amendment Act prohibited the sale and importation of contraceptives. That, in fact, remained the law in Ireland until 1979, when the Health Family Planning Act introduced by Charlie Hohey allowed the sale of contraceptives with a medical prescription. It's commonly thought that it only allowed the sale of contraceptives to married couples. That is not actually the case. The Act allowed the sale of contraceptives for bona fide family planning purposes. It was the pharmacists and the doctors who decided that only married couples could have bona fide family planning purposes in mind. The second reason there was a demand for Nurse Cadden services is down to World War II. This led to restrictions on travel between Ireland and the United Kingdom. Prior to the outbreak of war, there had been a steady flow of pregnant women to the UK. Some gave birth to their illegitimate children there and had them adopted. Legal adoption had been introduced. Others 
travelled for abortion. Although abortion was illegal in England, there were signs that attitudes were changing, particularly after the judgment in Orr and Byrne in 1938. There was also greater anonymity. The imposition of travel restrictions meant that women who would have gone to the UK could no longer do so. This lent to an increase in infanticide, in concealment of birth, in child abandonment and in abortion. And finally, there was an increasingly conservative climate, which some would describe as a hostile climate towards women. Dr John Charles McQuaid became Archbishop of Dublin in 1940. Eamon de Valera was in the middle of an 11-year term as Taoiseach. And by, between 1948 and 1951, when Dr Noel Brown attempted to introduce the mother and child scheme, which was in fact an attempt to have NHS-type free healthcare for all children under the age of 16, this was violently opposed by the Catholic Church and ruined the political career of Dr Brown. All of this led to concerted Garda action against abortionists in the 1940s. The trials of Nurse Cadden did not take place in isolation. William Coleman, who practised in Merrion Square, was tried in 1937 and acquitted, and tried again in 1944, convicted and sentenced to seven years. Mr Coleman was in fact an electrician who provided abortion services. Dr James Ash, also of Merrion Square, was tried in 1944 and sentenced to 18 months. He was convicted of a charge of referral. Edward Cyril Flynn, who ran a dress shop, a place to which women would have access, was tried in 1944 and sentenced to eight years. Christopher Williams, a chemist, and his partner Mary Maloney were tried in 1943 in respect of an abortion service they operated in Parkgate Street. He was sentenced to seven years and she was sentenced to 10. By 1944, most of those responsible for the provision of abortion services in Dublin were behind bars. All in all, between 1942 and 1946, there were 25 investigations or prosecutions in relation to abortion. Unsurprisingly, by 1944, Gartha attention had turned to Nurse Cadden. They got their opportunity in October 1944. A young woman who was in domestic service in Dundrum collapsed at work. She was examined by a local doctor who referred her to Hollis Street. She was pregnant and a sea tangle tent had been inserted in her vagina. This is a device used to dilate the cervix and can induce an abortion. The woman was suffering from peritonitis. Hollis Street reported the incident to the Gardaí. The woman gave a very detailed account of having attended at Nurse Cadden the previous Sunday. Some elements of her story did not ring true. She claimed to have got Nurse Cadden's address from a two-year-old newspaper advertisement which she'd seen while laying a fire. The ad itself was oblique. It's difficult to know how the woman understood what it was, uh, what the services were. She also claimed that she was not able to pay, but Nurse Cadden said that that was all right. This is inconsistent with all other accounts of Nurse Cadden's business-like attitude to money. However, she also gave a very detailed account of Nurse Cadden's premises and a detailed description of Nurse Cadden herself, including her whole clothing and the fact that she wore a hat with a feather on it. Matters weren't helped by the fact that Nurse Cadden turned up at one stage wearing a scarf which the young woman had been given by her mother and had inadvertently left in Nurse Cadden's premises. There was also corroborative evidence from the chemist who had sold Nurse Cadden a box of sea tangle tents. And the Garda search of her Pembroke Street premises 
resulted in 45 items being exhibited at trial, which the state pathologist said were all used for the purposes of abortion. The charge was under Section 58 of the Offences Against the Person Act 1861, the use of an instrument with intent to promote a miscarriage. The trial was not the cause celeb that her trial in 1939 had been, because an order had been made that it should be heard in camera, and there was limited reporting. The in-camera order appears to have been to protect the public and to protect the woman's employers, but not to protect the young woman herself, nor Nurse Cadden. And indeed, it's somewhat ironic that Nurse Cadden later blamed the husband of the employers as being both the father of the child that the young woman was carrying and having attempted uh, an abortion on her at home, which caused the peritonitis. Prosecution counsel in the case was Richard McLaughlin, a name that will be significant at a later stage. Nurse Cadden was found guilty and sentenced to five years penal servitude. Again, she served that sentence in Mountjoy and was released in 1950. She was now nearly 60 years of age, although she routinely claimed to be significantly younger. The usual pattern followed. She fell out with her former solicitor and became embroiled in litigation against him. She also set up her business again. There was a continued demand for her services. Although she was in declining health, her eyesight was failing. She suffered from arthritis and varicose veins. She operated her business now from a single first floor room at number 17 Hume Street. That room became the subject of a rent dispute between herself and her landlord and was described by a valuer as being a back room with a small recess. It had an open fireplace, a hand basin, a gas cooker and electric light. On the top floor of the house were a bathroom and a toilet. The room appeared to be used for business purposes. A plate was on the door with the words, Nurse's Bell, the bell connected with the room. Photographs taken at a later stage show the room to be crowded, almost as if Nurse Cadden was a hoarder. She immediately fell out with her landlord, a Lawrence Brophy. There were two reasons for this. The first is that the premises was rent controlled and the two entered into a dispute about the rent which was pursued through the courts. Mr Brophy described Nurse Cadden as initially quiet but then becoming aggressive and acting as though she owned the place. The other reason, which undoubtedly would have caused concern to any landlord, was that on the 9th of June 1951, the body of a woman was found in Hume Street. Her name was Bridget Breslin and she was a dancer at the Olympia Theatre. She was in a relationship with a married man called Standish O'Brady, who subsequently became a friend of Nurse Cadden's. Post-mortem indicated she died of an air embolism, which occurred during a medical procedure intended to procure a miscarriage. Suspicion immediately fell on Nurse Cadden. However, there was no evidence linking her to the deceased woman nor the deceased woman to her premises, and nobody was ever prosecuted. Nurse Cadden's bad relationship with her landlord were relevant to subsequent events. On the 16th of April 1956, she wrote a vitriolic letter to the revenue commissioners, in which, amongst other things, she stated that if Mr Brophy attempted to throw her out, she would shoot him. This was regarded as a threat to kill, and a complaint was made to the Gardaí. On the 18th of April 1956, at about 6.25 in the morning, Patrick Rigney, a milkman, was on his early morning rounds, and he found the body of a second woman lying partially on the pavement and partially in the stairwell leading to the basement of number 15 Hume Street. The body was partially clothed. The clothing had been removed from her lower half, 
Her knees were tied together with a stocking and she was covered with a black coat. Her bag and other belongings lay beside her. The Gardaí were called and attended along with the state pathologist, Dr. Morris Hickey, at the scene. A post-mortem established that the woman was five months pregnant and she too had died of an air embolism which occurred during an illegal operation. It appeared that liquid or gas had been pumped, probably by syringe, into her womb. There was a three-foot-long mark on the pavement, described as a drag mark, leading from the victim's head to the direction of number 17. Again, suspicion immediately fell on Nurse Cadden. She and the other residents of number 17 were interviewed. There was a search conducted of her room and a number of items removed, including a diary, some medical equipment and a red dressing gown. On the 28th of April, she was arrested and charged with threatening to kill her landlord and brought before the district court where she was given bail. There was huge media attention. Nurse Cadden gave interviews to journalists and was photographed in her room. Despite statements being taken from over 80 witnesses, the chief state solicitor was of the view that the case was not strong enough to prosecute Nurse Cadden for murder. He said that unless forensic evidence could link her to the victim or the victim to her flat, the case could not be brought. The Attorney General of the day, Paddy McGilligan, disagreed. He preferred the advice of Superintendent Wyams, and a prosecution was directed. On the 26th of May, 1956, Nurse Cadden was arrested and charged with murder and remanded in custody. I want to pause for a moment to consider the victim in all of this. She was a woman called Helen O'Reilly. She was 33 years of age, she was married, and she had six children. Her husband, John O'Reilly, had deserted her in 1955 and gone to work for a mining company in Africa. He too was an interesting, rather feckless character. His father had been part of a group of ORIC officers who arrested Roger Casement, and the family were known locally as the Casement O'Reillys. Perhaps in a reaction to his father's profession, he became a Republican and somehow ended up in Germany in the late 1930s, from where he was parachuted back into Ireland as a spy. He was denounced by his own father and spent the war in an internment camp in the Curra. After his release, he married Helen O'Reilly and had a series of failed businesses. In reality, their story is probably as simple as a couple in a broken marriage at a time when the law didn't provide a mechanism to disentangle themselves from the relationship. Desertion, although it sounds dramatic, is really one or other of the parties simply leaving the jurisdiction in order to exit the relationship. However, that left Helen O'Reilly and her six children with no means of support. The law assumed that a husband would support his wife and his legitimate children, and there was no social welfare available if he didn't. The payment that Helen O'Reilly would ultimately have become eligible for was not introduced until 1973, when deserted wives' allowance was made available as a non-contributory payment. That was the same year that unmarried mothers' allowance was first introduced and marked a significant turning point in terms of social policy. Now, women were to be supported by the state in order to rear their children, even if there was not a father actively involved in the family. These payments were renamed Lone Parent Allowance in 1990, and the focus shifted to who bore responsibility for children rather than the family structure and circumstances. They're now called One Parent Family Payment and covers a whole range of circumstances payable to both men and women who find themselves as a one parent family 
with underage children. Children's allowance had been introduced in 1944, but under the 1944 law was normally paid to the husband as the head of the household, unless it was established that he was living apart from the mother. Then, as now, children's allowance was not actually enough to live on. This meant that all of Helen O'Reilly's six children were living in institutions run by religious orders within a year of her husband having deserted her. Helen O'Reilly herself was living between the UK and Ireland. She had a sister in Preston, and she became involved with the man there by whom she became pregnant. She had very limited choices. Because she was married, there was an irrebuttable presumption that any child she had was the child of her husband. Her husband had already deserted her and the six children they had together. Adoption had been introduced in 1952, but only illegitimate children can be adopted, and Helen O'Reilly's child would be presumed to be the legitimate child of her husband, even though she hadn't seen him in over a year. There was no provision for legal separation until 1989 and no provision for divorce until 1996, so there was no possibility that Helen O'Reilly could form any relationship that the law would recognise with either the father of her child or with anyone else. Given the attitude of the time to women who had sex outside of marriage, it's difficult to know if Helen O'Reilly was actually a sex worker or just a young woman making the best of a very bad situation. However, the authorities were damning. Superintendent Wimes, in his statement made for the purposes of the trial, stated that Helen O'Reilly, aged 33 years, her husband was then working with a mining company in Nigeria. She was the mother of six children, eldest age nine. All the children were at the time being cared for at different convents in the city. The deceased had no fixed address at the time of her death. It's necessary at this stage to say that inquiries regarding the deceased show that she was a woman of loose morals who'd been associated, associating with different men. I don't understand why it was necessary, but it was certainly said, and indeed it was said by the trial judge in his summing up. He said, she was a woman living apart from her husband, living with other men, being with other men across in Preston, associating with men in this country, visiting public houses and spending long periods there. It seems that if a woman's husband left Ireland and went to Africa, she was living apart from him, as opposed to he living apart from her. The striking feature of Nurse Cadden's trial for murder is the dizzying speed with which it took place. The body was discovered on the 18th of April, 1956. A preliminary examination and depositions were taken in the district court over 15 days between May and June of 1956, before Nurse Cadden was sent forward for trial. Her trial in the Central Criminal Court took place over 10 days in October 1956. An appeal to the Court of Criminal Appeal was heard in December 1956, and she was ultimately reprieved in January 1957. Less than nine months after the body was first found, she had been through the entire legal system at inordinate length. At all stages of the trial, there was massive media interest. Crowds queued outside both the district court and the court in Green Street where the trial took place in October. Nurse Cadden remained a striking figure. She was still blonde. She still dressed in fur coats. Newspaper reports describe her, even in July, as wearing sunglasses indoors and carrying a magnifying glass. Her legs were strapped, probably because she had varicose veins. A number of women attended every day in support of Nurse Cadden. But equally, the crowd included two priests who positioned themselves opposite the jury box and spent 
their days watching the jury as opposed to watching the proceedings in the body of the court. All the commentators agreed that Nurse Cadden was in fact best served by the legal team that represented her at this trial. That team seems to have been deliberately put together on a multi-denominal basis. Her solicitor, Sanley Siv, was a member of Dublin's Jewish community. Her senior counsel, Ernest Wood, was a Protestant. And her junior counsel, Noel Hartnett, was not only a Catholic, but had been a Clonmacubbicka senator. However, she had bad luck in her draw of judge. Richard McLaughlin, who had been the senior counsel who prosecuted her in 1944, was now on the bench and was the trial judge. The evidence against Nurse Cadden was weak. The main factual witness was Patrick Rigney, the milkman who had found the body, and he changed his account between his original statement, interviews he gave to the media, his district court deposition, and his evidence at trial. He originally said that he had passed at the end of Hume Street and had seen nobody. Now he said he saw a figure crouched over the body and that he saw the glint of glasses which seems unlikely at 6.30 in the morning. He also claims to have seen a figure in the basement of number 15 when he actually went and attended at the body and described that figure as having puffed blonde hair and wearing glasses. He didn't actually identify Nurse Cadden, but prosecution counsel in summing up suggested that he had. An objection was made and the judge said that he would correct this in his charge to the jury, but never did so. The forensic evidence, with one exception, was equally weak. The exception was a detective, Horgan, who was a photographer of the Garda Technical Bureau. He had worked using light filters to eliminate marks which had covered over and obscured entries in Nurse Cadden's diary. The entry for the 17th of April read black coat. An earlier entry read blue coat. No names were used, and it appeared that Nurse Cadden was identifying her clients by the clothes that they were likely to be wearing when they arrived. Evidence was given as to whether the hairs and fibres found on the body matched those in Nurse Cadden's room and vice versa. This evidence was largely given by the state pathologist and was undermined by a defence expert, Dr Hackett from TCD, who obtained similar results from hairs found both on Hume Street and from a room in Eli Place where Helen O'Reilly had stayed with another man a few days earlier. Dr Hickey had estimated the time of death based on a temperature supposedly recorded by him in Hume Street on the morning of 18th of April of 18 degrees Celsius. That seems unlikely in April in Dublin. And it was disproved by the temperature officially recorded at Leinster House for the same time, which was only 7 degrees. Witnesses gave evidence of Nurse Cadden talking to a man at the door of number 17 for about an hour at 10pm on the evening prior to the body being found. The Gardaí believed this to be Standish O'Grady and believed that he had helped her move the body. He was called as a witness but denied even knowing Nurse Cadden. There were very few defence witnesses. Nurse Cadden's solicitor Stanley Siv gave evidence that he was unable to procure a medical witness. Firstly, either a gynaecological witness to examine the medical evidence, and secondly, to testify as to Nurse Cadden's medical condition. That was relevant to whether she would have been able to move a body from her first floor room, down, stairs, and out to number 15. It seems shocking now that a trial went ahead in circumstances where the defence was unable to obtain the services of two medical witnesses 
which its legal team regarded as essential. The expert witnesses who did give evidence on behalf of Nurse Cadden were all professionals and Protestants. Nurse Cadden's trial for murder depended on what was then the doctrine of constructive malice. She clearly had not intended to kill Helen O'Reilly, who was a client seeking a service. The doctrine meant that where death resulted from the commission of a felony, the mens rea implicit in the other crime transferred to the resulting death. The doctrine of constructive malice was a feature of abortion trials and was abolished in Ireland by the Criminal Justice Act of 1964. There was some dispute at trial as to whether, in light of this doctrine, the jury could bring in a verdict of manslaughter. The trial judge told them that they couldn't. It was murder or nothing, although the legal advice available to the Attorney General seemed to disagree with this. Ernest Wood, senior counsel, addressed the jury on Nurse Cadden's behalf for six hours. It was regarded as a tour de force performance. He appealed to the jury's innate sense of fairness. He said they were to disregard the fact that she had already been convicted in half the public houses in Dublin. He pointed to the weaknesses of the evidence that had been called on behalf of the prosecution, the inconsistencies in their case, the lack of evidence on key issues, his client's inability as a woman in her 60s with medical issues to get the body downstairs. He was followed by his junior counsel, Noel Hartnett, who raised the possibility that the body was in fact left in Hume Street precisely because it would direct attention to Nurse Cadden and away from whoever was actually responsible. He used the phrase, that there was not enough evidence to hang a dog. However, the jury had no problem reaching a verdict. They came back in less than an hour, finding Nurse Cadden guilty of murder. At the time, there was an automatic death penalty when such a verdict had been brought in, and she was sentenced to death on the 21st of November. The death sentence was not carried out on that date because an appeal had been taken to the Court of Criminal Appeal. That was heard on the last days of term and the verdict given on the 24th of December. Needless to say, the appeal was unsuccessful and Nurse Cadden was again sentenced to death to be carried out on the 10th of January 1957. Although a death sentence was mandatory for murder, it was rarely carried out in respect of women. And indeed, of the 22 women I referred to at the beginning of this lecture, only one of them was actually executed and that was in 1924. Gender was inevitably a factor in seeking a reprieve. In this case, however, there was considerable public hostility and very little sympathy for Nurse Cadden. Despite this, a number of individuals and associations petitioned the government for her reprieve. The Irish Association for Civil Liberties, an Oxford academic, Mr. Siv sent in a letter with 71 signatories, mostly members of the Protestant establishment. Only one member of the Oireachtas, Owen Sheehy Skeffington, looked for a reprieve. However, on the 4th of January 1957, the government made the necessary recommendation to the President. Nurse Cadden's sentence of death was commuted to penal servitude for life. It's not quite the end of the story. After a year and 10 months in Mount Joy, Nurse Cadden was transferred to the Central Mental Hospital in Dundrum for the criminally insane. 
This begs a question as to whether Nurse Cadden was actually mentally ill. She was certainly not criminally insane in the sense in which the law at that time required, being unable to appreciate the nature or consequences of her actions. However, her own legal team had expressed concerns as to whether she was fit to plead, and she was perceived as being difficult, but not dangerous. Her medical notes in Mount Joy refer to her as being deluded and violently resisted to staff. A medical officer's note of August 1956 provides some more detail. He said, she's also aggressive in her manner, demanding things that she considers are her rights here, with rights in inverted commas. Nurse Cadden was a remand prisoner in August of 1956. She was a woman believing that she had rights, and that was enough for her to be considered potentially insane. The medical officer requested a psychiatric assessment. Her biographer, Ray Kavner, suggests that at a time when she was already seriously ill, the governor of Mountjoy was in fact facilitating her transfer to Dundrum, where there were better medical facilities and more comfortable conditions. Or perhaps the governor wanted to be rid of a difficult patient. Either way, after eight months in Dundrum, Nurse Cadden died of a heart attack on the 20th of April, 1959. This hasn't been a lecture suggesting that Nurse Cadden didn't commit the crimes of which she was convicted. Given the nature of her practice, she almost certainly committed them, and indeed probably committed many more, although there must be doubts about the safety of her conviction for murder. The purpose of the lecture has been to look at Nurse Cadden and to see whether in fact she's properly described as a backstreet abortionist, when in fact she carried out her business in plain sight, cheek by jowl with the medical establishment. And when the legal and social circumstances in this country have changed so much that the practice which she was carrying out in the 20s, 30s and 40s would no longer be criminal today. Thank you for listening to this lecture of the 2021 Green Street Lecture Series. We hope you enjoy the remaining talks, which will be available on YouTube to view and wherever you get your podcasts.